Hey guys, I just want to tell you a little bit about our Podcasts app which is now live on the App Store. It's the world's first audio-driven app for experiencing medicine. Every week you can step into the shoes of doctors with an engaging case and quiz. Download now and have a look for yourself. Let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we've got another amazing guest with us who I'm sure you've probably seen all over YouTube, all over Twitter. We've got Dr. Rohin Francis, who's also known as the Medlife Crisis, joining us today. Just a bit about him. He's an interventional cardiology fellow, a PhD candidate, and has an amazing YouTube channel with more than 300,000 subscribers. It's a massive pleasure for you to join us today, um, Rohin. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me. Um, I was just telling Ams before we came on, like I saw one of your tweets and they literally make me laugh. Is You had the screenshot of the GMC register where you're about to report someone and I thought, crap, like what someone done? And it was basically <laughs> one of your SHOs didn't watch a single episode of Scrubs and you're reporting them. And I, I just, just, I just didn't think it was possible. I'd never, I'd never met a doctor that hadn't watched even one episode. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to, I didn't know what to say. I just yeah, stopped I talking to them and walked away. Yeah, do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you made me laugh. Like I love your stuff. I think maybe this is like a like a like a fangirl <laughs> podcast. Uh, what I love about it is when they're in the middle of a pandemic. You know, there's COVID, and sometimes some of the stuff you read on Twitter, it's it's a bit depressing sometimes. And then you just come in with that super cool witty comment and it's like yeah like i'm enjoying this and you kind of make things a bit more pleasant a bit more humorous um and kind of a bit more enjoyable um and since then i've kind of followed you religiously um i think on all the different um platforms you're on um and i think uh you probably have lots of fans and they probably want to know who you are kind of get a bit more insight into your story um so would you be kind enough to kind of share your journey from the very beginning when you're probably you know thinking about medicine why you wanted to be a doctor and kind of take it all the way up to present sure day. yeah i mean <clears throat> i think my story is not particularly interesting but um i uh like i i guess um a lot of people who go into medicine was very interested in science and and, and fond and good at science um uh, at school but i think in my case one of the key things that made me interested in a career in medicine was my elder brother who uh, has got severe learning disabilities. So I grew up my whole mm. life uh, sort of looking after him from a young age. And my mum, mm. quite unusually for an Indian mum, actually was really keen for me not to go into medicine. And, um, you know, mm. when I started expressing an interest that I wanted to do it, she was you know, try, did her best to put me off and wanted me to go into the city and, and earn lots of money, I think. But um, uh, I know that, mm. you know, she was very happy when I when I did go in because, um, you know, it, it ended up being really useful. Her health uh, later in life also um, had a lot of problems. And, and I felt like I was much more useful to the family as a as a medical mm. professional and certainly you know whenever my, my brother's got a lot of challenging health needs and i was able to to really be an advocate mm. for him and and still am uh for his health so i think he he definitely um shaped many things about my life but particularly kind of my interest in going into medicine and but it it, it wasn't something that i'd kind of dreamt of from a young age i i i remember 
when we were doing UCAS applications, I was like, oh crap, what shall I do? And, you know, my friends were going from Etsy and I thought, yeah, yeah, that, that you know, that seems good. Let, let's go for that. But uh, I didn't have like super strong feelings about it. Um, and um, yeah. throughout medical school, I stayed pretty close to home and, and um, was, was still very much mm. uh, supporting my family. So, um, you know, it, it it's been a career that has allowed me to maintain a lot of interest outside of, of work. Um, and I joke with mm-hmm. kind of work experience students that, that come and shadow us that are you, you know, con- please consider something else. <laughs> um, and I do kind of mean it when I say it, like I, I do think that there are a lot of other careers that are very rewarding and, and less stressful than medicine. But um, Having said all that, you know, I, I wouldn't change anything. I'm, I have no regrets and, and I, I do enjoy the job a lot. And how was kind of that medical school experience? You know, was it like a big shock kind of going from college, sixth form into the system? Kind of what were some of the difficulties that you have may faced and, and how you overcome them? I, I actually loved medical school. I, 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 um, I was the youngest in my year at school. So I took a year out before going to medical school. And I did something completely unrelated. I worked for IBM for most of that year. Um, and they had a, a, a oh, cool wow. scheme. I don't know if it's still going. You know, this is going back uh, almost 20 years. Um, and hmm. the uh, so I basically was just this kind of um, tech support uh, for the London hmm. South Bank office, which you'd think IBM has got a lot of tech people already, but they're all off in some other office. This was the kind of (laughs) marketing business center. So they were clueless. You know, Mm -hmm. basically my job involved just turning off computers and turning them back on and um, and just (laughs) pretending to do work. So I had a great year um, and I just pestered um, the person responsible for Wimbledon because, you know, IBM do a lot of all the tennis grand slams. Uh, from like I found out her name mm-hmm. and from like every day I'd email her saying can I work at Wimbledon can I work at Wimbledon and eventually she she caved yeah. and so I ended up sort of spending uh, several weeks setting everything up and then having a access all areas pass in Wimbledon and and you know it was oh, wow. just this amazing luck um, and then I had to mm. f- finish that and go straight into medical school so it was a real sort of <laughs> strange transition but the reason I'm mentioning a year out is mm because I think it was crucial for me growing up. So when I got to medical school, I wasn't like, I I went to an all boys school. So I didn't like come out of school Mm. straight into uni. And I think a lot of people who have a kind of sheltered uh, teenage years for whatever reason, whether it's family reasons or or schooling, like in my case, where I just had this kind of very skewed exposure to uh, normal life. that year out really helped. So when I came to uni, it was fine, actually. And I, and I settled mm. in and I had a f- fantastic time. Mm-hmm. I think I took a fairly uh, minimalist ro- uh, approach to work. And I, w- I was very good at <laughs> knowing exactly what I needed to do to pass and n- not anything else. Mm. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, yeah. um, I think that's really important. You know, I think a lot of you know, and so, some, sometimes some of the gu- things you guys have discussed on, on your podcast before is um, mm. a pressure, I think, now that medical students are under that, that w- wasn't there when yeah. I was studying to kind of always be productive, always be studying and, you know, 
hustle grind and all this stuff and that's fine you know and if that comes from within that's great but i i do talk to medical students sometimes who feel under a bit of pressure and i try and always emphasize that look these are the best years of your life i also would put in your f f years foundation doctor years i don't think you know that that was just so much fun medical school and and being a an f1 and f2 um and i think you got to enjoy it you know don't don't uh, don't stress too much make sure you enjoy the journey um don't be worried about taking your time adding on f3s f4s i would advise everybody to there's no hurry you know if you want to become a gp or a hospital consultant you'll be doing that the rest of your life don't don't be in a rush to to get there and certainly i've added on a bunch of years um so i would certainly recommend that and i'm glad you echoed that because our theme is kind of we want a lot of medical students and junior doctors to enjoy the process embrace the journey rather than kind of rush head first into consultancy and kind of waste a lot of years perhaps not doing things that they wanted to do or may have liked to do only to kind of regress it later down the line um and i wanted to ask is with kind of your journey um with the fact that you're kind of doing a phd as well as doing a cardiology fellow i think we hear about it and i used to hear a lot about it in med school but i never understood what it kind of entailed um i was wondering if you'd kind of share what an average week looked like or average day looks like for someone that's kind of doing both um from yeah your sure so the, the the thing with sort of higher degrees i've got i guess fairly strong feelings about some of this stuff um in that a lot of the competitive specialties it's now become pretty much expected to have a higher degree um and it's kind of like the intercalated bsc used to be you know it started as a an optional thing and if you you wanted to kind of set yourself apart from the crowd and maybe you know be a little bit more competitive for applications but then it there was this uh, sort of inflation so that it became actually the minimum that is expected for certain things and they wouldn't even entertain an application for a certain foundation programs if uh, unless you had a integrated bsc and it kind of lost its value it became less something that people did because they they wanted to and just something that they did because another tick box and you know another extra year at uni is is no bad thing so that's not not a big deal but when you're you know in your 30s or late 20s and you've been working as a doctor for quite a while you might you know have a family or something like that adding on extra time uh to do something that you want to do is fine obviously but if you feel forced into doing something then i think that that's just a waste of your time and so- something like cardiology which is obviously one of the most competitive specialties but the same can be said of neurosurgery and um plastic surgery and orthopedics and things like that is that it's now become something that is almost expected and getting onto a training program okay you you can understand that you need to uh, compete with everybody else so a lot of people will take the route which was the traditional kind of route that you'll need to have an md or a phd to even get into cardiology training but now it's often the case where people were, are getting into training and then they're taking time out later to do research um and you'll often hear you know i want to do intervention i want to do ep something competitive that you know i'm not going to get a job unless i have a higher degree and 
why I feel strongly about this is because I know a lot of people that have done that just as a as another tick box exercise, and I think that's kind of reducing academia to, to, to something that you know the majority of people go to medical school to become clinical doctors. If you've got an interest in academia, that's fantastic, and that should be nurtured, and you should take opportunity, and you should do research for sure. But that that's not everybody, you know, and a lot of cardiologists, are, you know, the people I I know best. They'll do their MD or their PhD. They'll come out. And they'll never do any other research again. They'll never use any of the stuff that they, they you know, spent their time doing. Mm. And it, it it was just an exercise in in sort of getting a job. So, I I would like to say that you know if I'm in the position to be hiring people in future, um, then I I, yeah. I would like to look beyond, you know, just if somebody has not got a higher degree but they've got many other things that they are achieving and that they've done i think you know that shouldn't be a, a a hurdle so you know in answer to your question about sort of what a typical day looks like normally people will will take time out of program to do this uh, um sort of an md or phd in which case you can you know allocate much more time to research and then what you shouldn't do um which everybody told me not to do, but I've ended up doing, is to come back into full-time training. I'm in my final, I'm a few months from CCT now, uh, whilst trying to to write up your thesis, because that's just, it's just Jesus. hell. And, you know, I, I, I'm really struggling there because, you know, obviously your main priority is you're going to be starting as a consultant soon, is to make sure all your clinical stuff's up to date. And there are lots of stories of, people who have taken years to write up or have never written up and, that, and that's mm. that's a, a shame and i hope i don't end up like that but at the moment i'm really struggling to fit everything in particularly with all you know family and youtube and everything as well talk to us a little bit about how are you actually balancing some of those so you are doing generally what it looks like you're doing loads loads of things you are pushing out the youtube videos you are i guess doing the clinical work and the research and everything that comes with it how are you balancing it <laughs> yeah people ask me this now I th- the short answer is that i don't really sleep very much <laughs> i think that's basically there's no <laughs> secret to it i just i kind of uh average maybe four or five hours a night i think um and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure that's doing me no favors for my my, my physical health. But uh, I think the thing is, I, I enjoy the things I do, and I've got a very low threshold yeah. for cutting out stuff that I don't like doing. So, you know, there are a lot of um, activities that people do to prepare themselves for consultant interviews or at any stage, you know. Um, stuff that you need to have on your job applications and audits and leadership courses and management and all this kind of stuff. And if something is absolutely mandatory, obviously I'll have to do it, but even then I'll really push it to the limits and I'll be like, look, I'm not going to waste my time doing X, Y, Z. I'm doing stuff that I like. And if the interview panel or, you know, whatever the, the thing in question is if they take a dim view and they say look you haven't Mm -hmm. done three quality improvement projects um and they can't recognize that say if i produce a series of educational videos um that's got merit Mm -hmm. 
yeah. in itself, if they can't see past that and they're like, you know, we, we, we need to have all of these boxes ticked, then that's fine. You know, I don't think that's going to be the place for me. And that's my kind of attitude is that yeah. I, I just do stuff that I like doing. I've got a very short attention span. I'm easily distracted. But so, I'll, you know, I'll try various things. If I don't like it, I'm just not going to bother. And if I find something that I enjoy, I stick with it. And and actually, then it doesn't feel like I'm balancing loads of things. It just feels like I'm doing stuff that I like. Um, and, yeah. I, you know, I also don't sacrifice any time with my kids or my family. And I, I, I um, uh, try to dispel the, the myth that, you, you know, there are things like cardiology and particularly sort of intervention that you've got to be completely laser focused yeah. on work the whole time. I don't think that's the case. I think you can you yeah. can have a nice balanced life and, and still work in a, a, a competitive specialty. Some are less conducive than others. You know, there are worse on calls in a lot of specialties and surgical specialties. Um, but you can still you can still make it work. So that brings me on to now YouTube. Tell us a little bit about how you got into that. And then you clearly love it. I mean, your personality and everything comes across and it's amazing. Tell us how you got into it and your journey through it. And what's it been like for you being also a, a YouTuber? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's funny how it's all kind of snowballed. Um, so it was really in in um, my out-of-program training, uh, sorry, out-of-program period when I was doing uh, research that, um, you know, you start um, talking about your own science. So there's this, this kind of catch-all term of science communication, um, which a lot of scientists now are in, encouraged to engage in. And there was certainly a long period through history where science was this kind of far-removed thing and scientists were these men in white coats. And um, they would just issue facts and edicts and and the, the problem is this has led to a real distrust of science and scientists it's it's mm. fed into the modern kind of anti-intellectual um atmosphere that we find ourselves in and that's you know not you know not uh, the majority but at least in part our own doing that we just weren't very good at communicating with the public or we'd give them confusing messages like eat carbs then yeah. no don't eat carbs eat fat and you know all these things change and, and we can't um uh you know it, it's the fact that the public think that we're constantly changing our mind when actually we all know that in science that's a good thing to be changing our mind is because we, we don't yeah. talk about it much so i kind of started getting interested in science communication and i'd done a bit of stand-up at uni i hadn't really um kept it going much but then a friend of mine who's a comedian uh said do you want to come and talk about something a bit geeky at, at an event uh, like a stand-up comedy event and i thought okay sure you know i I've, i guess i'd kind of been keeping it going a little bit because whenever i give a presentation at work I'd, I'd make it a bit funny um so so i yeah. you know had I'd, I'd been keeping like in in shape i guess from a comedy point of view and then i went to this event and it was great and really enjoyed it. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something here. And I, I kind of knew my way around video editing software a little bit because I'd, I'd messed around with making movies at, at uh, medical school and entered a few film festivals and 
um, won a couple of awards. But then again, I just kind of left, left, let it all fall by the wayside. Um, and so I thought, okay, let's give it a try. And it came, it came to it, I, my one major regret is that I wish I had just started on YouTube earlier because some of the massive channels that I really love um, were really early adopters. You know, they got in there at the ground floor and they're now huge. And I, I wish I had um, had that foresight to get, get in there sooner. Um, and then I just, you know, it just kind of went from there and it started as a little hobby, but it's pretty much become like a second career now. And it's opened up loads of loads of doors and, you know, ended up on TV. And that that's in itself quite interesting because um, I don't really have any aspiration to be on TV, but a lot of YouTubers, particularly in the science space, are doing it as a kind of... Yeah. Um, way to get into television a lot of my friends are quite keen on tv careers but i have absolutely no, no desire at all um and then mm-hmm. uh you know i've now got a sort of regular spot on on bbc radio and it's all come from from youtube so um yeah it's been very lucky and a lot of fun when you started out on this youtube journey and now that you've grown a, a subscriber base of over three hundred thousand, what's the views of your peers so the science community other consultant peers what what were their views on you being also a YouTuber? Yeah, I think that's a great question because it, it, it it's quite variable actually. When I um, started kind of putting stuff online, not videos, but sort of Twitter um, educational stuff. So I'd put um, you know case mm-hmm. cases, case discussions, and stuff on on Twitter, and my online stuff was much more medic directed in, in those days. Now it's a bit more of a general audience. Um, I was still in Cambridge then, and um, it's quite a stuffy environment and it's quite academic. And I th- they took quite a dim view, to be honest. And, you know, I just kind of kept it a secret. I didn't really tell anyone. And then uh, where, where I am now in, in Essex, the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre in, in Basildon, which is a tertiary cardiac centre um, on the same site as the, the, the DGH hospital, but it's a kind of separate bit. Um, it's quite new. It was only st- uh, f- um, founded in 2007-8. So it's got a very different atmosphere. It's, you know, got a lot of consultants who are quite um, forward-thinking. They, they're not stuck in a kind of um, uh, archaic system. So that they're actually really receptive. I mean, some couldn't care less but but a lot of them no i don't think anybody has a dim view on it and a lot of them are are really interested and have seen that you know that's the way forward in in medical education as well so i'm doing some projects at work where you know which are much more serious medical stuff and um they realize that it's an asset to have somebody who who sort of understands that online world so it is quite variable um and it can be really frustrating when you work in a place where they're just they just refuse to kind of move with the times and you'll find this from places like the GMC and a lot of hospital trust that you know if you look at their kind of tech uh, guidelines for like you know what a doctor can or can't do yeah they're just stuck in the past i mean you know just just really like written as if social media was not even invented you know they're they're really archaic they're kind of made for like tv (laughs) um kind of regulations so 
a lot of the time, I think you just got to just do stuff. And obviously, don't do anything stupid. Don't ever breach confidentiality. And I think that happens a lot. Yeah. You know, I think you, you have to be really careful. I think in my early days, I, I did some, you know, I, I, I never posted anything obvious. But e even some of these people who do vlogs and stuff, I, I just worry sometimes that they are flying a little bit close to, to, to the to the sun, to the wind. I don't even know what the idiom is. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, just you, be careful. But I don't think you need to ask permission and be too worried. And some people are really unfailingly professional and they don't let their personalities come out. You know, they're just, you know, completely serious online. And I think that mm. that's fine, but you're not going to get anything out of it then. You know, you're not going to really benefit from the interactions you'll find on, on, on Twitter and other medical professionals that you can meet, um, which again, you know, separate to the YouTube thing, I think that's been a real boost to my career. Um, and, uh, you know, like you guys said, the, 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 the stuff that I think I do um, is a bit more lighthearted and, and is trying to cut through a lot of the kind of doom and gloom and scaremongering about um, medicine and COVID. So I think you just be just be yourself, yeah. Misinformation, yeah. I feel I don't know if this is future, but what I love about what you're doing, there's still an element of seriousness, a lot of you know evidence-based videos where, and I think maybe that is a way of kind of communicating with the general public in a way that they're more receptive to. Um, you know, even when the videos you did about COVID, kind of the vaccines, explaining things, kind of all the facts, the myths, I think it's a medium a lot more of the general public are receptive to and i think it's an asset that i think a lot more doctors should try and employ um and it allows you to kind of still retain your character you still kind of have your personality and do something you enjoy um and i don't know if you see the future with a lot more medics kind of jumping onto youtube kind of having a way or a means of communicating i think the nhs should have like their own proper channel um that's a le less formal and a bit more kind of clinician driven i think you're right that since i started which I, i've been making sort of videos seriously for about two years but i, I kind of had put some mm -hmm. uh, videos in the previous year but not not many so but even since then there's been an explosion in medics on on youtube i, I previously thought i i knew most yeah. of the people but now i just find new people every time and um <laughs> you know yeah. quite a lot of them get in touch and, and it's you know it's nice to to make context mm. i think they're mostly kind of your level mm. you know that that um and yeah, like, so yeah. i definitely feel like the kind of <laughs> the kind of grandfather or the <laughs> sort of uh, the older gen the older generation <laughs> um uh on on youtube <laughs> which is which is the same way i feel when i go to youtube events i feel like uh, some some old man yeah uh, but that's fine i just lean into it now so i don't, I don't mind it um yeah but you know you what you're saying about the nhs having a channel they they do have a channel mm. it's just kind of i think mm. from the from their point of view they've got their hands tied they can't really do too much yeah, i've talked to them several times there's mm. you know what the nhs mm. is like you know the social media team is yeah, <laughs> they've got no money or anything they're, they're just doing what they can yeah. and i've chatted to them about mm. you know potentially helping them um <clears throat> because their mm. channel is much smaller than um a lot of the, the medics mm. themselves but whenever they've come with ideas i've just thought i don't really want to to get involved it just sounds kind of boring um mm. so 
mm-hmm. <laughs> being an individual allows a lot more ability to 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 have a, a, you know a bit of a bit it's of fun. Yeah. So I think the NHS it would be a, a struggle for them, but there are examples of channels that have have done it well who mm. are still corporate, but you know um, yeah some of the American uh, institutions like the Cleveland Clinic and stuff. They put out quite yeah, quite good yeah. content. You know, a lot of it is very American and kind of, mm. you know, that kind of. Um, style, yeah. To us, it feels a little bit kind of fake and and cheesy, but yeah. but actually, you know, there, there's some good explainer videos. There's some good discussions and things like that. So you know, this is something we're trying to do in the UK. I've been working with uh, the British Cardiovascular Society and and the Royal College of Physicians, um, and that's another thing that you know when there aren't that many people on youtube you become like the go-to person so you know a lot of people kind of contact me saying basically the the summary of their email is you know can you just make videos for us i'm like you know no and uh unless you pay me a ridiculous (laughs) amount i'm not (laughs) um but uh i think you, you can see that there's a disconnect they're like i don't understand this but this is a guy so let's let's get him you know he can he can do it all sort it all out for us like you know it's not it's not that straightforward um but there's definitely an increasing interest um and i i chatted to a a guy last week who's who's started a channel um he's got a couple of thousand subscribers and and he um just wanted me to, to kind of say a few bits in a video and he was saying what is your advice for someone new starting on, out on YouTube, a medic starting out on YouTube? And I said, yeah. um, mm-hmm. tr- think about what sets yourself apart. You know, there are all these channels now, loads of medical students, loads of F1s and F2s starting channels. So mm-hmm. why am I going to watch yours compared to all the others? You know, what are you going to do that's different? Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, there can only be so many study with me and, you know, productive day in the life. I think I think where where or oh, the highest one is how I study seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, I mean, you know, how I ranked how I ranked. Do you know what I mean? You know that. But but then the funny thing is, yeah. is Ali Abdal, who I know uh, you guys know well, and is a, is a friend of mine. Yeah, course, the yeah. very same day posted a video saying, mm-hmm. uh, "Do exactly what everybody else is doing, and uh, don't be worried." If other people have done this video, you should do it as well. You know, if it's mm. a react reaction mm. video or a vlog, then don't worry about it. So we mm. were giving completely contrary mm. advice, and obviously he, his channel yeah, yeah, is yeah. way bigger and growing way faster than mine. So you should clearly not listen to me and listen to him. But mm. it was I found it quite amusing yeah. how we we <laughs> we had completely uh, differing advice um, differing to, to starting out yeah. on on YouTube. And you know, he he literally runs a course on how to. Um, be- become a YouTuber, so YouTuber. so clearly he knows what he's talking about. But I don't know if if um, mm. I, I don't know. It, you know. I think there's always this element of survivorship mm. bias that someone who's successful will yeah. think the way they've done it is the way to success, and that's just that's just mm. them. You know, it's just luck. So um, it's mm. it's difficult. Mm. But I know this is this is nothing really to do with your question. Um, but I think that there mm. there is definitely potential for a lot more people to get onto mm. not just YouTube, you know, TikTok and all these other forms of, of uh, platforms oh, now. Are, yeah. uh, a lot yeah. of doctors are, are embracing them and uh, and doing well. 
I think you're very good at what you do and I think we are starting to see a lot more medics and you know doctors kind of jump onto these platforms and it, yeah it's not just YouTube it's Instagram it's TikTok I'm sure there's a few rooms in Clubhouse now um, and I think it is something worth exploring because I do feel the way this whole new Gen Z trait and the new generation all the tech savvy is a better way of getting much needed information across to them as to kind of some of the old school sites that are existing on the website um, I just remember this and I wanted to ask your, your name Medlife Crisis <laughs> I'm sure it's a play on the midlife crisis, but where, how did you come up with that? You, 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 you won't. If I forget to yeah, ask that, it's a kind of an odd story. It's, it's, uh, it's nothing. It, you know, I, I'm, I guess, known for my love of bad puns, but it wasn't actually thought of just as a pun. Yeah. It was my original plan yeah. for when I thought, oh, I'll start making videos on YouTube, yeah. is because I had hmm. uh, got really into the gym and I bought a couple hmm. of motorbikes. And my friends were like, what the hell is this? This is a midlife crisis. And, um, and, and, th and then uh, I started, you know, I think most guys tend to go through this phase at one point. You, you start um, looking at all these, you know, gym-related stuff online and fitness this and fitness that. And I realized, yeah. oh, my God, so much of this stuff is just complete nonsense. You know, this bro science. And <laughs> so I was, yeah. uh, I think I just turned 30... No, I was already well into my 30s at that point. And um, then mm. I, I thought, hey, maybe I could make kind of a vid videos about dispelling bro science for kind of people who, because a lot of it is tailored at like 18 year olds and, you know, bodybuilding.com and all that mm, stuff yeah. is like, you know, everyone. Mm. And, and my body was already falling to pieces. I, I really um, had, had a... <laughs> You just gave up. No, I, you know, I just I abused my my <laughs> joints uh, horrifically um, for many years. I, I was a break dancer yeah. and a, a sprinter, and um, and oh, wow. so I, I was in agony most, you know, throughout the day. So I thought maybe I could have a <laughs> aim for the kind of over thirties market and like talk about um, yeah. fitness and and dispelling this kind of bro science and. So instead of midlife mm, crisis, yeah. it was going to be a medlife crisis, a doctor doctor explaining. And then I just <laughs> never did any of that in yeah. the end and just decided to keep the name instead. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the name is quite cool. As in like, it, as in like it kind of fitting of the stuff you put out and what you're about. And, and, and I love it. I was like, yeah, the name is sick. Um, I wanted to ask with, I think there's a lot of people and a lot of our listeners that will probably maybe interested in cardiology um, and you're an interventional cardiologist. What's the difference and what does that kind of entail? Um, like some of the on-calls, I know people probably never get into, especially now because of COVID, they can't go into placements as much as before. But how does like a typical shift look like for an interventional cardiologist? Um, so uh, intervention is... is um the subsection of cardiology that deals with um, cor mostly coronary intervention, so sort of balloon angioplasty and stenting mm -hmm. of, of um, uh, occluded and, and narrowed coronary arteries, but it also involves structural intervention. So uh, things like um, uh, TAVIs, which are transcatheter aortic valve implantation. So this is where we replace the aortic valve mm -hmm. um, via uh, going in at the top of the leg so it's 
uh, you know, that's quite an exciting development in the last 10 years or so. And then closing holes in the heart and mm -hmm. basically taking as much work as we can from the cardiac surgeons um, and and finally putting them out say. of business entirely. Um, so I, I initially sure. started as yeah. a cardiac surgeon. That was what I wanted to do and then realized that cardiology is taking everything. Mm -hmm. um, so intervention is, is that yeah. part, but there are sort of other subdivisions in cardiology like electrophysiology, which is dealing with arrhythmias and doing ablations and things like that, uh, that and pacing, which mm -hmm. is putting devices like pacemakers and resynchronization, ICDs. Then you can have other things like uh, imaging. So this is um, doing specializing in all the different imaging modalities, MRI, CT, echo that we have in cardiology, sports cardiology, maternal mm. uh, um, cardiology, and uh, congenital um uh, management of grown-up congenital heart disease so adults adults who were mm. born with congenital problems who've, who've grown up and, and now have certain issues later in life and for an interventional mm. cardiologist i think the main downside is uh, that you're likely to be i mean i don't personally think it's a downside because i actually really enjoy the acute stuff but mm. you're on a primary pci rotor so primary pci is dealing with stemmies yeah. and um you know that's one of the um, kind of main um, uh, success stories in in cardiology overall is is cardiology, the treatment of yeah. ST elevation MIs, and you know it's massively reduced uh, mortality um, uh, by being able to to treat patients with primary PCI, and but that's obviously twenty four hours a day. Mm -hmm. So y y the on call commitment is quite significant. So interventional cardiology you know, comes with a significant on-call commitment and, and out-of-hours work. And that's something definitely to think about for a career. And I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But, you know, in your 50s, do you really want to be getting out of bed at three in the morning and, and coming into the hospital? Um, and uh, But day-to-day, -day, aside from on-calls, uh, you know, most of my work is in the cath lab, so doing interventional procedures, um, both acute and, and elective. And I don't actually have much clinic commitment at the moment, but that, you know, all cardiologists will uh, do uh, quite a lot of clinics. I've also got um, experience in cardiac MRI, so so I, I do a bit of that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, cardiology, I would certainly uh, highly recommend because I think it offers many different um advantages it offers a combination between acute and, and chronic care which i really like i i tend to be quite drawn to the very sick sort of um, critical care type type patients but i think if you do that all the time because mm -hmm. I, I thought about intensive care for a while yeah. then i think uh, you go a little loopy so i think it's nice to have uh, something outside I, I like using my hands you know and, and i enjoy the the manual dexterity skills in, in the cath lab a lot I, I, I that's probably what i enjoy most is, is just being in the lab um so yeah it's it's uh, I'd, I'd definitely recommend it but it but it's um it's not for everybody you know it, it is quite hard work with cardiology being so competitive and phds being almost the tick tock exercise me medical students and juniors who are very keen on cardiology if they're being offered PhDs, should they take it up at an early stage, or would you say no? Wait till you experience it, and then decide. What would you? What would I you think advise? that's a, that's a very good question. 
Um, I, th- I think you, you've got to want to do it. I mean, I, I don't think you should you should take up anything mm-hmm. just because you feel that it's going to stand you in better stead later on. Because there is an argument to do research later on when you've got more experience in a field uh, where you can generate your own ideas and hypotheses. And if you are so inclined, you could do clinical research. So you know, you could do research that's mm. in the cath lab. You could actually be doing cases and using your research period to actually learn a new skill and then come out and become, you know, the, the, the guy that offers that special thing. That's not common. I mean, that, that I don't know many people that have done that because it's, it's, it's few and far between to get those kind of clinical projects, but it's certainly possible. And I think, you know, if you uh, do your research very early on, and it's in something quite niche, well, it inevitably would be, um, mm. then you may change your mind later. You might decide, actually, you know what? I, I think neurology is, is more for me. And it won't kind of count against you. You'll still have that higher degree um, and it'll still... But, it, mm. you know, you may feel that actually if I had done my research now, it would be in the field I'm really interested in. I could have really enjoyed spending time learning about this particular thing that I'm, I'm now going to spend my career in. Um, so for me, I hadn't really made the decision. Like I said, I was kind of more keen on cardiac surgery to begin with. But even then, I really only started making that decision around my final year at medical school. And mm. even through my house jobs, I was still kind of toying with different different things and... Um, uh, you know, applied for, for surgery and then later medicine. So uh, unless you're really positive really early on what you want to do, I don't think there's uh, that should be a reason to do it. However, if you do a BSc and you really enjoy your um, your project and then your supervisor says, do you want to make this into a PhD and you're having a good time and you've got it. And, and I think the main thing that's worth their weight in gold is a, is a good supervisor. So if you get on well and mm. you feel supported, then I would say maybe that's even more important than the subject itself, because as long as it's something you're, you're interested in. Um, because remember, most PhDs are not going to change the world. You know, it's very rare that someone does a project that is, is truly practice changing or truly going to, you know, be a really high profile thing you're doing it to learn about this field but you're doing it for yourself and i think if if you find uh, yourself in a scenario where you've got a project that is uh, not going to be too much stress to get off the ground that is something that interests you it doesn't have to be your main passion in life and you've got a supervisor that's that's uh, good that's going to be able to allocate you time and support then I think um, that would be a, that, that's a great scenario to, to, to actually go ahead with a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a difficult one to, to answer, but um, I, yeah, I mean I think there are pros and cons about doing it early and doing it late. What, what you don't what you don't want to be in, is in a position where you're struggling to get into a training program. And then you're kind of forced into doing something and then you kind of have to settle for whatever comes your way because sometimes there just isn't that much on offer. You know, if you're applying at a certain time of year or, you know, right now, 
with with budgets cut and and research all all on hold finding a research project at the moment is 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 really tough you know and and uh, i know a post yeah. that's being advertised for a research fellow and, and loads of people are going to be applying for it i, di- I didn't really answer your question did I? <laughs> no but it's, i think it's good insight because we have a lot of these questions that come to us and the difficulties obviously because we're so early on in our career we c- can't really give like a justified answer having not experienced it or not have done any of it as to if it's like interclassic bsc we we've both done it so we can give the pros and cons to it so it's always nice where someone quite senior like yourself that people relate to does give their insight um i'm conscious of time and what i wanted to ask just before we wrap up i'm sure there's a lot of budding cardiologists out there what advice would you give them so they can kind of make the right decision or they can get a more competitive application for applying when it is time to apply for specialties um, what are the things they could do to help them i i probably not going to say anything that's that they won't have heard before but and again like i was uh, i said earlier and I'll, I'll emphasize again that there is an element of of survivorship bias so just because it worked for me i'm not saying it's universal but what i i felt is that um you, you obviously have to do some bare minimum stuff but don't get too hung up on on one thing so a lot of people get very stressed about publications and i had like one proper publication when i applied for cardiology um but i had done a lot of other stuff and i think that helped set me apart um you know because they're interviewing countless people every day you've got to have a strong application form to to get an interview in the first place so so you know that there's no shortcut I'm, i'm sure everybody knows the things you need to do there but even on there you can you can show your distinctiveness so i had one academic publication but i had run a newspaper uh, at medical school i'd sort of won journalism awards i'd published in like just normal articles and other stuff so i said look you know yeah i've published one peer-reviewed thing which was some rubbish um but i've written all this other stuff so you know that made me a bit different and when i went i don't, I don't know what application system is like at the moment but in those days we actually had a, a hard portfolio a hard copy portfolio that we took to the interview oh i've seen those they're like um they're like a, a suitcase it's like weighs like a ton <laughs> and i've seen people like get leather bounded ones with like their names engraved on it. yeah so that was what i wanted to avoid that. because you know p- people would come with these enormous things <laughs> so i just brought like a like a school style small uh little folder with plastic sleeves and it just mm. had like uh, yeah. some photos of me, uh, like winning, like random stuff, and uh, just mm-hmm. like cuttings from newspapers and things. So, and, and it, maybe it was at high risk. Like they thought, well, who is this clown? Um, but I just thought, just yeah, photo like, album. like a photo album. Here's your, me on holiday. Um, here's me yeah. having a pina colada. <laughs> yeah. And um, <laughs> no, so, you know, yeah. I just thought. Well, they're going to remember that, right? They're going to remember me com- compared yeah, to sure. somebody else. Mm. So I think what my advice would be mm. is you've got to do the basics for sure, but but try and have something that makes you a bit more memorable, a bit uh, different. And that, that doesn't have to mm. be you know mm. totally zany and offbeat. It could be something very mainstream medical, like you know you did a you presented at a um, a major international conference at a at a young age and mm. something you know something anything like that but but um 
you have to be a bit of an all-rounder but there's no harm in leaning into one thing and really trying to distinguish yourself in, in that um, and don't get too hung up on on publication I, mean, I i definitely agree and it's nice to kind of hear it from someone like yourself who's kind of done well in the specialty um i know you need to quickly rush off but i just want to thank you again Rahim, for taking the time out to have this conversation um it's always nice to kind of hear your story kind of see what got you to the point you are here today um, and i'm sure lots of listeners will be keen to hear it um, it's been a massive pleasure um, so thank you for coming on today well no it's the ple- pleasure's pleasure's all mine it was it was very nice chatting and thanks for inviting me and um, i'd be you know happy to to talk again in future no of course and we wish you the best with your consultancy i'm sure your juniors are going to love you i'm going to try to figure out what hospital you're at and then i'm going to try to do like a few shifts there a couple of shifts under you <laughs> oh yeah yeah <laughs> all, all, the, all the best with that um well yeah. I, I need to i need to get a job first but yeah uh, yeah um but you know th- I mean, maybe i can i can mm. close with that because I, i'm yeah. obviously chatting to a lot of friends who are already consultants and getting tips and everything mm. about consultant applications and uh, unfortunately it's quite a lean time in yeah. terms of jobs so who knows what's going to happen mm. but one thing that i keep getting told by consultants who are a few years in mm. is they're like you've got to have mm. something else you've got to do something yeah. else because if you just do medicine you're going to go mad and you're going to get bored so a lot of them uh find that they're yeah. a few years into consultancy and they're just like you know they've got they've got bored Mm. some people you know fill their time with with private work and obviously there's a monetary reward for that that's not something that really interests me but Mm. um they all seem quite envious they're like oh it's so good that you've got this this media stuff because i think they're just they're just kind of bored and so maybe they'll move into education or or whatever but the the message i keep getting is don't give up outside Mm. interests and it doesn't it doesn't have to be you know like any it could just be some sport that you love doing or, mm. you know, going sailing or painting or whatever, or just being a parent or something like that. But um, I, 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 you know, I, I always try and tell people that we got to move away from this image of jobs like cardiology being all consuming. But, and I think another thing is, is also it puts a lot of women off. You know, if, if, if um, women, uh, we know that there's a massive underrepresentation problem in, uh, cardiology of women and um, in interventional cardiology the, the ratio is nine to one um, uh, or no maybe that's overall in cardiology I think in, in intervention it may be even worse um, and if we keep you know saying that cardiology is this kind of hellish life that, that you just can't do anything else it's not going to encourage people who 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 want to have less than full-time training who want to uh, maintain a normal family balance and i guess what i'm trying to say is it doesn't have to be like that you you can um have a normal life and, and do normal stuff i think it's amazing that it's it's amazing hearing it from seniors and consultants and senior registrars when they say have something else i think before there was a time when if you were a medic or a surgeon and you had you were doing anything outside of the specialty it was looked down upon and now it's being embraced and sort of encouraged and championed, which is really amazing. Yeah, I think that's a very good observation. And um, uh, you'll still find people like that, for sure, you know, that, that kind of look down their nose at anything else. And I had a friend who uh, 
was really into music and and he uh, was in the top 10 he'd produced a, um, a sort of successful record and he was a cardiothoracic trainee and he went to his deanery and said look you know I've been signed to a record label it's it, it's really taking off I can I take a year out to just see what happens if it doesn't work I'll, I'll, I'll come back and they said oh yeah you can take a year out just don't come back and so then he quit you know and so you'll still find people like that but um I've got to tell you you guys you know you've got your outside interest podcast and your business stuff and a lot of other um uh, doctors you know junior doctors that I meet are also you know very dynamic like this we've mentioned Ali before and I, I'll tell you loads of consultants uh will will say kind of in confidence they're like you know you can see that they're actually quite uh you know I don't want to use the word envious again but they 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 they, they admire that uh you younger doctors are just doing other stuff and Part of that's because, you know, when they were at your level or my level, they were working much crazier hours. So I think there is a little bit of resentment maybe from some of them. But most of the time, it's just really positive that they really like the fact that, that doctors are doing other stuff. And also, you know, they're not putting up with the kind of crap in the NHS. And a lot of people are leaving now and doing other stuff. And, and I think that's that's healthy. Yeah, yeah. no, I definitely agree. And um even more confident when you do make that transition to being a consultant, you'll champion it and kind of empower other junior doctors that do want to do things outside of medicine. And I've heard countless stories of, you know, when something does start to take off and you have to make a decision of, do I continue my special training? Can I take a time out? And it's always, you have to pick the training number or you go and do this and can't return. Um, so I'm confident that this is changing. And I do agree. I think it's beneficial for the country, for the NHS and for us as a community as a whole. Um, so yeah agreed definitely um it's been a massive pleasure Ryan, um and we will share this widely and i was gonna say how do people get in touch with you but i probably don't need to, need to do that um because i'm sure everyone knows who you are um but just quickly if people do want to get in touch with you or do you want to find out a bit more about cardiology or about the stuff you're doing on youtube is there a place to get a hold of you or what's the best platform yeah you can you can find me on on twitter um at uh, medcrisis um i'm on i don't really ever check instagram messages so that's probably the wrong place to, to contact me um or i've got my website medlifecrisis.co.uk um I, I do my best to reply to everybody but apologies in advance if i don't because uh, sometimes things just get a bit lost but I, I try my best no that's fine we'll kind of share the links to all of that um, when we get the episode out but yeah thank you so much again Rohin and a massive thank you to all our listeners you, again um, we'll see you all next week